0: is not the end. Death is not the beginning either. Death is just a blip in the story, a space between words. But most importantly, it's the easiest way for the story to fill your body with worms. The story must be told. The story must be told. Yes, we will all die, except for Shalms. And when we do, remember, don't have a funeral if you must, invite your loved ones to a popular restaurant, blow your funeral budget on sp-, sp-, sp spicy apps, and at the end, get everyone a milkshake. No one has to dress up, and when your family's insides are a-boiling, they'll know it's not grief, but undercooked chicken. It's just like they say on the commercials, if TGI Fridays gives you the shits,
1: you don't have to
0: tip. <laughs> Uh, Pastor Andrew, the song?
1: Thank you, Sister Callista. <clears throat> Here's a joke I heard from an uncle on the can. And if you listen closely, you'll hear the laughter of the man. A noisy dog was barking on and on every night. Most neighbors bought a sound machine, but Ridge Timmons picked a bite. Ridge walked to the neighbor's porch and knocked upon the door. Hi, I'm here to bite your dog. If you watch, would you keep score? The agreement, it was simple. The neighbor, she said it true. If you win, I eat the dog. If he wins, he eats you. The man tore off his shirt. The dog removed his collar. They slapped down in the mud. The dog barked. The man hollered. Ridge slammed the pup with force. The dog bit the man's rear ender. But the pup, he was too fierce. Ridge laid down and surrender. You lost the fight. You know the rules, Ridge's neighbor said with pride. Go on, good pup. Eat your fill. Ridge grinned. A secret he did hide. The dog bit Ridge's muddy nuts. You fool, Ridge did mutter. For it was not the mud in which they fought, but sticky peanut butter. The dog's mouth, it was sealed shut. A vow of silence he did take. Ridge Timmons slept a night in peace. Even the pup was not awake. Shh, sleep tight. Hush, hush, 99.
0: Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for telling us about the clever man who wrestled a dog in peanut butter. (laughs) Now, we welcome Brother Reed to the pulpit to share the truth of the story. Brother Reed, please, slop us down a little, fistful of story.
2: A story titled, Doogie Reassembled, or The Incident by Dr. Gertrude P. Grinshaw. Section one, prologue. Doogie rubbed off on people like peanut butter. Little bits remained and hardened. He was the first kid with a yo-yo. The yo-yo craze followed. He introduced head lice to Bishop Brewer High School. He wore pinky rings before that was just a New England thing to do. One day, late July, Doogie, 53 years old, four daughters, one wife, dozens of friends, one terrible secret, mowed his lawn in Croton-on-Hudson, New York. He ran the spinning blade over the hidden empire of a wasp nest. Their stingers made his body a Swiss cheese. Ah! Doogie died three days later of the 1000 sting assault. His face was so swollen, his oldest daughter, Jenny, could not understand the man's gasping final plea. Nineteen others died the same way, and newscasters called it Bad Wasp Summer. Doogie's friends thought it was the trendsetter's final parting trend. This was incorrect for two reasons. One, ten years later, when the incident occurred, Doogie would succeed once again in starting a trend. Two, could a man like Doogie be called dead when so much of him remained? Doogie was important for his role in my brother, Solomon Grinshaw's discoveries, for his role in the incident. But it could have happened to anyone. In fact, it often does, but in private, a cabin in the woods, a hotel room on a dark night, a dream. The public nature is what made the incident, the incident. When the incident happened, and it did happen, mind you, it forced the masses to ask a question they had never thought to ask, how many living people equal one dead man? In Doogie's case, it was 11. A cast of unwitting participants. Neil Gillespie laughed with Doogie's laugh. At Jewish sleepover camp, he and Doogie would skip all the daily activities. They'd hide on the top bunk, eat rollos, chew tobacco, and crack each other up. Doogie's laugh reminded Neil of the bell at school, how it rang and echoed, then fell to a titter. He loved it. After a week, Neil started laughing the same way. Now, in his 60s, while watching YouTube cat compilations, while streaming Adam Sandler movies, while listening to his wife make fun of her friends, Doogie's alarm bell laughter reverberated from Neil Gillespie's mouth. Portie Wagner, who dated Doogie for three months after college, 40 years ago, possessed Doogie's smell. She called it a garlic musk, and while together, she would sleep with her nose pressed into Doogie's armpit. Right before they broke up, Porty stole eight shirts from Doogie's closet. He left her voicemail after voicemail, back when those were on separate machines. What did you do with my shirts, Porty? Give me my shirts back, Porty. I don't have a lot of shirts. You can have one, not eight, Portie. They became her rotation of night shirts, and she never washed them. For decades, Portie stewed in Doogie's garlic musk eight hours a night every night. The shirts were just the start of her crimes. Doogie's daughters retained his genome, save the Y chromosome. Jenny had his eyes, Penny his nose, Betty his physique, Minnie his fondness for alcohol. When Mrs. Doogie's now adult children slept in their old rooms, the widow felt a gnawing certainty that Doogie was still inside the house. If she took an Ambien, she could hear his voice. God damn it, who left the window open? Minnie. As Doogie's closest lifelong companion, Mrs. Doogie took on the cross of the dead man's social network. This is why, unlike the others, she didn't have to physically attend the incident. She was the psychic glue, the center of a transcendental spider web. Every person she knew was first a friend of Doogie. Every stranger she encountered, every teller at the bank, cashier, the liquor store, the butcher, the mechanic, all they talked about was Doogie. He was such a crank, but he liked ice cream. No, he loved ice cream, and they'd laugh and laugh. After his passing, Mrs. Doogie lost not just her husband, but most of herself. In time, she forgot her own name. But this is not to say Mrs. Doogie knew everything about her husband. He had secrets too shameful to reveal, hidden from his wife in the home they shared. And last, in this case least, the egg and dairy division of Prime Retail Foods Corporate retained every one of Doogie's jokes, even the one about the camel. After he died, the man's co-workers, who also based their identities on rude dude humor, split up the dead man's jokes like the garments of Christ. Tim Chellery told the one about the noisy dog. Honk Matthews did the one about the cigar and the ballerina. Chet Galloway told the one about the toilet in Congress. And Ivan, George, Jin, Willie, but most importantly, Marianne Lombardo all told the one about the Polish guy at the gynecologist. Section 2. The incident, which decades later would so thoroughly change our understanding of human consciousness, should not have happened. It required 11 people from cities across the country to coincide in one spot at the same time, thinking the exact same thought. Yet improbable as it was, it did happen. There are photos only some people can see and videos only some people can watch. But they do see and they do watch. It is this author's belief that the incident would never have occurred were it not for the following events. A, Puddles, Doogie's elderly dog, irreparably injured Mrs. Doogie's left eye. B, Brendan Wagoner was arrested for the distribution of cocaine. C, Rad Tad Johnson, the host of TGIF Happy Hour Trivia, fell through an open manhole to his wet grave. A, Puddles. On the afternoon of Friday, October 14th, the day of the incident, three of Doogie's daughters, Penny, Minnie, and Betty, waited for the oldest daughter, Jenny, to arrive at Grand Central Station. For the first time in four years, all the daughters would be home. All it took was their mother losing an eye. Puddles, a hulking Alaskan Malamute, had retained Doogie's my way or the highway attitude. On a walk down the nature trail behind the Doogie house, Puddles caught whiff of a skunk. Don't you do it, said Mrs. Doogie. Puddles did it. He took off after the skunk, too eager for the old woman's balance, but too old himself to break her grip. Puddles dragged Mrs. Doogie 30 feet on the wet grass, then off the path into poison ivy, honeysuckle, and dry twigs. That's when she accurately screamed, My left eye! Mrs. Doogie was half a mile from home. The neighbors were at the lake all weekend. Clasping a mitten over her eye, she had lost all sight of puddles. As night came down, she imagined Doogie still alive, running down the path to find her. I lost puddles, she cried to the empty trees. On October 12th, Jenny got a call from an unknown number, which she ignored. When she finally checked her messages that night, she learned what happened to her mother. She called the hospital back. Mom, I'm so sorry. Jenny would go on to apologize 26 times. Mrs. Doogie told her of her horror, how she spent a night half blind in the woods, how the doctor said she could keep the eye, but not her vision, how Puddles was gone. Jenny started calling the other daughters. They each agreed to come home, even though it wasn't Thanksgiving or Rosh Hashanah they felt the same fear they felt a decade earlier after Doogie's passing, that Mrs. Doogie could not survive on her own. The three younger daughters met Jenny by her bus gate. Jenny had coordinated all their routes to coincide at Grand Central Station, specifically allotting enough time before their Metro North train to take in the historical landmark. We always just rush through, she told them in an email with an attached itinerary. I've never looked at the clock. They walked through the station, avoiding the angry crowd in front of the gate for the delayed 4.05 to Hudsonville. B, Brendan. Portie Wagner had a ticket for the 4.05 to Hudsonville. She arrived at 2.50, lugging three antique trunks full of old costume jewelry, and a fourth trunk of a different sort. The three trunks of jewelry were her inventory for Poe craftsy, a seasonal Poughkeepsie craft market, the earnings of which would just cover her train ticket. This is why she had the fourth trunk. Among her personal effects, wrinkle creams, brushes, and five of Doogie's old shirts, she was transporting six kilograms of cocaine. Her nephew, Brendan, had used her to supply his modest upstate coke empire for the last three years. It's what paid the rent. As she arrived at the station and loaded the final cocaine and shirt-filled trunk on a cart, she received a text. Just thinking of reaching for the phone made the last trunk wobble on the cart. She ignored when it buzzed, when it buzzed again, and as she heaved the cart into motion, forgot it entirely. Porty trekked the luggage all the way to the luggage check-in. The woman at the counter loaded each hulking trunk onto a conveyor through a security checkpoint. It never occurred to Porty to fear security. On these trains, it was only a metal detector attended by one bored cop playing poker on his phone. Not to mention, she was 62 years old and white. After dropping off the baggage, Porty bought a sizzling hot dog cinnamon pretzel from the hot pretzel shop. Biting into it, she pulled out her phone to check her horoscope app. A message appeared on screen, the text she had ignored almost 30 minutes ago. It was from her sister. Brinden got arrested! Then a follow-up. They know! <clears throat> Portie coughed up her hot dog and left it half-chewed on the public table. She raced down the hall, rounding the corner for the luggage counter. I need my luggage back! She shouted. The woman behind the counter raised her hands in alarm. I'm sorry, it already went through, ma'am. Dread shaped Portie's face into a trapezoid. What's wrong? Was well, there medicine inside? Portie slammed her fists on the counter. No! The officer at the metal detector glanced over at Portie's direction. For the first time in her life, Portie feared the police. Before he could see her face, Portie turned her back and ran, as fast as a woman in her 60s can in clogs. Next to the hot pretzel shop, Portie breathed hard into her linen collar. Shit, shit, shit! See! Rad Tad Johnson. At Prime Retail Foods Corporate, Tim Chellery broke the sad news to a group titled Trivia Hounds on Slack. Hey, y'all, trivia is canceled tonight. The objections pinged in one after another. What? OMG, no, why, why, why? Tim posted a Gothamist article with the grisly answer. Struggling trivia host falls to death in open sewer. The trivia hounds felt the singular grief of losing a trivia host. TGIF happy hour trivia had been a tradition for over four months. Honk Matthews mourned Rad Tad Johnson via emoji. Chet Galloway insisted they still play trivia. Marianne Lombardo did more than insist. She searched the internet for nearby trivia. Guys, there's trivia at a bar next to Grand Central. If we leave now, we can make it. They agreed to do it in honor of a man who named himself Rad Tad. Neil Gillespie had left his job in Manhattan early, hoping to catch the 405 to Hudsonville and start the weekend early. He entered Grand Central Station, walked to his gate to discover a crowd of people shouting and groaning. The 405 was delayed. It was never delayed. He even went to a woman at a ticket window. It's never delayed. There's a police investigation, but it's never delayed. Unsure what to do, Neil wandered Grand Central Station and dicked around on his phone. Down a hallway and off to a corner in the train station, there's a small tiled room folks call the Whispering Gallery. If you stand in one corner and whisper, a person standing across the room at the opposite corner can hear. Neil Gillespie didn't know the incredible sonic power of this room as he walked inside, watching videos on mute from the home screen of his YouTube app. Nothing was making him laugh. It was 4.30 and the 405 was still delayed. He leaned against the wall and watched a video of a Norwegian man restoring a World War II Zippo lighter when he heard a noisy group of people approaching. The trivia hounds left work early and took the four train uptown. Marianne thought the easiest way to get to the bar was to walk through the labyrinth of Grand Central Station, forgetting how elaborate the structure was. They went up one escalator, then down another, through a hallway, then back. It was around the hot pretzel shop when Marianne realized she was lost. The trivia hounds stood outside the whispering gallery as Marianne checked the directions on her phone. Honk started to tell a joke he first heard 15 years earlier. Okay, so a ballerina goes to the doctor. Doc, I got a big ballet coming up, but my vagina stinks like a dumpster. From the other room, Neil heard a joke begin. He wasn't one to eavesdrop, but something about the words drew him in. For a moment, he could feel the height of a bunk bed, taste Rolos and tobacco. As the doctor and the joke started describing a questionable treatment, all four of the Doogie daughters gathered in the Grand Central corridor of Grand Central Station, staring up at a four-faced clock. That's neat, said Jenny. It's like four clocks. Penny was the first to hear it, a school bell laugh echoing loud and falling to a titter. Dad? Then the other daughters heard it, their fathers laugh. Minnie took Jenny's hand and squeezed. Jenny was the closest to Doogie. Jenny broke into a sprint, pulling Minnie with her. Jenny ran past a crowd of Christian teens on a field trip, jumped the legs of a man either sleeping or dead, and rounded the corner. She began to hear the end of a joke she only heard when their father was drunk. No, you dumb dancer. You were supposed to puff the cigar and sit on the radiator. The laughter rang all around her. She broke through the crowd and traced the biggest laugh to a broad back the size of her father's. A chill ran down her spine. She placed a hand on the man's shoulder and the laughter stopped. Instead of her father, a ginger man in his 60s with sunspots and astigmatism turned to answer. He swallowed, do I know you? Sorry, I I thought you were my dad. Neil rarely had a young woman come up and tap him on the shoulder. He made the choice to ham it up. Well, I don't think you're my daughter. <laughs> What's your dad's name? Jenny rolled her eyes and spoke while turning to leave. <sighs> Doogie bug Luck. This time, it was his hand on her shoulder. I knew Doogie Bugluck. Now the trivia team perked up, having heard the name of a man who, had he been alive, would have been the fifth trivia hound. I'm sorry to interrupt, Chet said, waving an arm. But are you talking about Doogie? In the vast open corridor of Grand Central Station, over hundreds of heads, the light began to deflect and ripple like a bright spot of ocean floor. Section 3. The Incident. While Jenny and Minnie ran off, Penny and Betty had stayed behind. They heard a commotion arise near the gate for the 405 to Hudsonville. Porty Wagner had arrived at the train gate in a hurry, yelling, I need my luggage! Hello, yes, I need my luggage! The station agent rolled his eyes and turned to the woman. Yes, ma'am, what can I do for you? My luggage! I need it right... <gasps> Behind the man, Portie finally noticed the police. They ripped open the first of her trunks. She swallowed her remaining words with a vocal grunt. Ma'am, the attendant said. Portie watched as an officer opened the fourth trunk, heart pounding. The lid flew open when, Hey, Cheryl, check out these earrings. (laughs) The officer turned away. Portie could save herself and her nephew if she acted now. The gate attendant watched as Portie sidestepped to the trunks like a crab. Ma'am? As quickly as she could, Porty reached into her trunk, wrapped Doogie shirts around the bags of cocaine, and began clogging away. She made it two steps before the clanking shoes alerted an officer. Stop right there! Porty broke into another sprint. She ignored the shouting as she rounded the corner into the Grand Central Corridor of Grand Central Station. A thousand people heard her clanking approach, then the officer shouts. Portie passed in a four-sided clock and found herself momentarily distracted by its majesty. Sensing Portie's hesitation, Officer Sheryl Borogood grabbed for her taser and leveled it at Portie's back. She pulled the trigger while shouting,
1: Freeze!
2: Portie slid face first into the ground, twitching and foaming as 50,000 volts completed a circuit of her body. In a spasm, her arms threw the cocaine, but more importantly, Doogie's shirts. They fell to a bundle near Betty and Penny, right as Jenny arrived with Minnie, Chet, Marianne, Tim, Honk, and Neil. Betty, Penny, you won't believe who we just met! The smell of Doogie mixed with his split genetics married the floating sound of his laugh and the echoes of his words. Penny called Mrs. Doogie on the phone as the officers escorted Porty Wagoner through the group. In that moment, the officers localized a mathematically improbable but necessary coefficient to the burgeoning incident. Mrs. Doogie answered Penny's call. You're not already here, are you? No, 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 I'm at the station and we- I just got out of the shower. No, mom, it's- you won't believe it, but we just met all these people who know dad, That's when inhuman screams filled every ear. The rippling air in the cathedral of Grand Central Station congealed to substance and color. A human shape contorted there, floating above so many heads. It was the first recorded public haunting, or as it would come to be known, a hazy life. The police let go of 40, Penny, by instinct, ended the phone call with her mother. All the souls Doogie had smeared with his essence watched him condense, unaware of their role in his resurrection. This brief second life was not painless. At first, only Neil, Cordy, Jenny, Betty, Minnie, Penny, Chet, Marianne, Tim, and Honk could see the incorporeal dead man flitting in and out of existence above their heads. But the more they screamed and pointed, the vision spread to other commuters. The police officers who escorted Porty were the next to see Doogie reassemble, floating above a four-faced clock. Being officers of the law, their first instinct was to shoot. Though Doogie did twice scream as a bullet pierced through his body, investigations recovered, every bullet fired, and analysis showed no vestige of human matter. Either the officers were terrible shots, or it wasn't flesh that comprised Doogie Bugluck. Witnesses took cell phone pictures, which, to outside eyes, did not reveal a floating Doogie. But the witnesses could always see the man. They could point to any photograph of the event, and not just point Doogie's location, but in agreement say it was only his torso or his head, or say if he looked scared or in pain. As my brother Solomon Grinshaw proved, identical photographs of the same patches of ceiling, taken at later dates, did not elicit any response from the witnesses. They saw Doogie. Doogie blinked in and out of existence for only 52 seconds. His first 20 were agony. During the final 32, however, he stopped screaming, or rather, he continued screaming, but articulated screams into words. Jenny! He roared at his firstborn daughter. Jenny! <coughs> he struggled with this word for 15 seconds. Jenny watched in slack jawed horror, or perhaps captivated confusion. along the ceiling, but as Chet scooted away in fear, Doogie disappeared. Five seconds passed. Was he gone? Jenny tried to blink the afterimage away. Tim picked Chet off the ground, and the coefficient was once more complete. Doogie returned in a flash of green light and a strange spray of pungent grease. The entirety of Grand Central Station screamed, 22 babies cried, and five dogs barked. His head distorting from his body in VHS stutters, Doogie shouted two more words at his oldest daughter in a megaphone pop.
0: Burn
2: it! The officers, needing to take charge, decided the first priority was arresting the old woman. Get her to the cruiser! As they yanked Portie away, Doogie flickered like losing a radio signal, blurred into static, then nothing. The babies kept crying. Doogie's daughters stared at the ceiling, hugging one another. Penny's phone rang. It was Mrs. Doogie. She ignored the call. An investigation began in multiple agencies, the Department of Homeland Security, the local sheriff's office, and for some reason, a two-person team from the physics department of the University of Miami, Ohio. The sheriff's office focused on the cocaine and deemed it a routine drug charge with a fun story. The physics department from Miami, Ohio, contested it ever happened. The DHS filed a report classifying the incident as uh, just a fluke, I guess. For years, the incident lived on in tabloids and online conspiracies, a matter of novelty, not study. It was cataloged and forgotten until my brother Solomon uncovered the file in the basement of the University of Miami, Ohio. How it ultimately destroyed his life is another story. Epilogue. Jenny Bugluck and her sisters went home on the 615 Hudson Line to Croton Harmon. Their mother picked them up at the station, much to their dismay. Her head was still wrapped in bandages. Betty was aghast. Are you even allowed to drive? Mrs. Doogie waved the question away. Left eye or not, nothing could ruin seeing her daughters. Hush. Now what was this about someone knowing dad? The phone cut out. The three youngest daughters looked to Jenny. She didn't say a word. Mrs. Doogie looked her four girls up and down.
1: Is everyone okay?
2: You all look like you saw a ghost. Three of the daughters followed Mrs. Doogie into the house with their luggage. Jenny left her bags behind and punched the keys of the keypad for the garage. The code was Doogie's birth year. The garage was Doogie's domain in life, and it remained his in death. Mrs. Doogie never cleaned it, thought it disrespectful to disturb even the dust. Jenny had to step over ancient bags of lawn trimmings, little stems sprouting through the burlap. Dull lawnmower blades, and empty cans of Miller. Below a garage sale clock of a tropical sun, she saw the shelves. Dozens of plastic tubs, dirty baseball gloves, rusty lawn chairs, a never-opened beer-making kit, a broken bicycle pump, and in the lower left corner, where the tortured visage of her father had directed her, a flat blow-up kiddie pool. Of course, Jenny said. She took a seat in the dirt, all at once exhausted. She rubbed her face. What the fuck had they all seen? Was it real? From her new lower angle, she could see there was something behind the flat kitty pool. Jenny crawled to the shelving unit. She pulled the pool away to reveal the box. The cardboard was soggy and moldering. It bore no marker label, but it was taped tightly shut, or it had been. As Jenny pulled the box closer, it fell apart, contents spilling free. Doogie Bugluck was a popular man who did popular things, and whatever he touched was a success. But what Jenny touched felt like shame. She picked up what she thought was a shriveled husk of an apple. It was not fruit, but foam, a clown's nose. She pulled away the slack ribbons of tape and by mere unfolding, tore the top free. As decrepit as the box was, the inside was pristine, stored in two layers of plastic bags. Jenny removed the first bag, seeing bits of rainbow-colored obscured within the second. She opened it and found a wig, well-used makeup brushes scratched and splattered in pancake, and a stack of photos. The first photo was of a man in full clown regalia, one leg lifted high in the air mid-jig. Children screamed in laughter, Judging by the tinted glasses on the parents, this was maybe 40 years ago. It took flipping through the next two photos, Doogie brightly lit in a black box theater wearing mime makeup, Doogie and Porty posing with normal shirts up top and clown pants below to realize the clown in the first photo was Doogie. The photos covered what looked like two years of her late father's life. Two years of mime lessons, studying clowning technique, two years in face paint. He looked happier in the photos than she had ever seen him in real life. Yet for all his love, no one liked clowns. No one liked mimes. It was a love he could convince no one else to share. Jenny tried to upload the photos in her mind as fully as she could, the way her father smiled, the motion blur of the children's clapping hands. Then she gathered all the contents in her arms. She found a long-tipped butane lighter on her way out. Behind the garage, Rain had rusted a hole in the bottom of the charcoal grill, but it would work well enough. Jenny arranged the photos and objects on the flaky red grill and started a flame. When she was done, Jenny went inside the house. Betty was trying to wipe malware from mom's computer again. Penny and Minnie were out calling for puddles. Mrs. Doogie sat alone at the kitchen counter. Hey, Mom? The mother looked at her daughter and frowned. Jenny still had that terrified look to her. What is it, dear? Mrs. Doogie feared whatever was going to come out of her daughter's mouth. She thought someone was dead or missing or pregnant. Instead, what Jenny said was this. Was Dad ever, like... A professional clown? The dread that had consumed Mrs. Doogie all day finally broke. She laughed and laughed, eyes closed, head tittering with each burst of air. She shook her head in full confidence. (laughs) Oh, no. The story must be told.
1: Thank you, Brother Reed, for that good story, true. You know, while I listened, I wondered, what will I leave behind when I die? What parts of me will live on inside other people? (laughs) Well, the more I think about it, I guess you could say there's a piece of me inside all of you congregants. Do you know what it is? I'll tell you. It's a two. That's right, I put a tooth in you while you were sleeping. I slipped into your room, I brushed your sleepy cheek, and then I put a tooth in you. You didn't wake up. I did this to everyone. Why? Why did I do this? It's simple. After I'm dead, any time you congregants gather together, it's like I'm still smiling. (laughs) Good night, everyone. (laughs) Sleep tight. What?
2: That was The Story Must Be Told. I'm a balloon. Yeah, a big yellow one. Channeling the story is tough. It's tough stuff. Support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash TSMBT. I'm sorry, I misspoke. My name is Balloon. (laughs) Jeff Balloon. And I'm yellow because my liver is failing. We have an exclusive podcast just for Patreon subscribers on Weeks Between Stories. It's called The 522 Club. The clergy cuts loose and gives you a peek behind the scenes. I misspoke again. Yes, my name is Jeff Balloon. And I'm yellow and my liver is failing, but I'm an actual yellow balloon. Jeff Balloon, and it's not my liver, but the liver of a dying man who tied my string around it. let go, I'm a balloon, patreon.com slash tsmbt, $5.22, get you there, buddy, or you can donate more and have petition read in your name and get a welcome package, or pay premium and get a t-shirt, ugh, I misspoke again. I actually don't know if I'm a man or a balloon. That's what happens when you name a balloon Jeff. And while it's not my liver, the dying man certainly gave it to me. Find a doctor, trade it for a new one. Geez, okay. That's just what happens when you're a sentient balloon. We'll be back in two weeks. And before I go, let me be clear. I misspoke. That man isn't dying. He's dead. That's what happens when you cut out your own liver and attach it to a balloon. Don't give it to a balloon. I don't even
1: know who I am. Jeff Balloon. I got to wait for them to stop grinding the sidewalk up. Cool. I'm gonna blow my stack. <laughs> <laughs> this is fucked. Hold on. Okay. One second need to stop again.
0: I also I think you said slapped instead of slammed. I don't ah, know if that fuck.
1: <clears throat> son of a son of a cock bitch. Crap. Okay. Wait, that go.
0: sounds weird. Okay, it's gone. I'm a little it on is, edge today. I think.
1: Yeah, it is 9/11.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey Adam. <laughs> hey Adam, what's up, dude?
1: <laughs> okay. Ugh. No, I'm glad you told me. It's like having a booger in your teeth. You want you want the person to know.
2: <laughs> the classic booger in the teeth. The,
1: okay. the BT. <laughs>
2: I'm sorry, Adam! I can't stop my voice from being a fucking idiot! Well, I'm gonna say the wrong word. Shut up, voice! I'm sick of you. I'm gonna drink glass! Alright, sorry the cat was being a little dick boy. My cat is such a dick boy. Meow, meow, meow! I'm a dick boy. Ugh, cats. They're all dick boys! I think that's good. I think you got all the voices you need. Adam, let me know if there's anything wrong, and I'll, I'll fix it up for you. I love you. I love you, Adam. Someday, when we get married, I'm going to rub your back so hard you get a rash. Ow! Ow! Who rubbed my back so hard? Your adoring husband. The story must be told. This show is made possible by listeners like you.